welcome to another episode of the Pedestrian Podcast this week in the glow of a 50 burger myself, Stuart Court, and as ever, Mr. Adam Nathan are here. How are we, sir? Very well. And yourself, how's things? <laughs> it's been a pretty, pretty <laughs> crappy week. Last last week was uh, uh, family things. This week is uh, the old Rona finally caught me after almost two years. So this is day five. Day five of being in these sky blue uh, walls. Um, yeah, getting better. Yesterday was a rough one, but today is a bit better. So this this was uh, something that got me through yesterday. Was uh, looking forward to doing the pod as always, Adam. Uh, but yeah, this week we are joined by the man calling perhaps, probably the final Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll Seahawks game this weekend, and the voice of the Eastern Conference leading Chicago Bulls, Mr. Adam Amin. Welcome back to the Pedestrian Podcast. Oh, good to talk to you. Good to see you, boys. Hope you're uh, recovering well, Stu. I know, I know the feeling, but uh, glad we can give you at least a little bit of uh, <laughs> a little bit of a, of a respite, hopefully, here in the next few. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've been lucky enough to be able to watch the um, Ashes, which is obviously lucky is probably not the word from an English perspective. Um, <laughs> how's how's everything been since last time we spoke? Obviously, it's been over a year, but not a lot really has seemed to have changed. <laughs> We've uh, not not a ton, in all honesty. Obviously, uh, a little bit of a different world, and a little bit of a little bit more travel and and things of that nature. But uh, no, it's 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 still the the season feels a little bit longer. The the week the eighteenth week really does feel like a like an additional two weeks on the season somehow. So the season is uh, it's been a little it, it's felt longer. I think you could feel the the weight of it uh, as it's as it's continued to go on uh, go on and. You know, whether it's the COVID outbreaks with some of the teams or with the jockeying for position of the playoff race or whatever it may be, uh, the length of this season, I think, is felt. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing by any means. I'm not, I don't mean to make it sound like a complaint, but uh, it, it has been a long run and uh, I can yeah. see the finish line here. You're preaching to the choir on that one, I think, uh, Adam. <laughs> I imagine I imagine this year a little feels a little bit longer for you guys <laughs> oh than maybe goodness. last year did. This, yeah. whole, this whole season feels longer than the entire pandemic, if that's somehow <laughs> possible. If it's possible, I think, I think the Seahawks have made it feel that way at times this year, I would imagine. How's it been for you calling games? Because I, I may be wrong in saying, was last year your first season of calling NFL games? So obviously you went, you went from doing that in empty stadiums to now normality you know for, for want of a better expression so how, how's that transition from one to the other you know, what's the vibe been like it must have been much more exciting from your standpoint to do it you know a more real life feeling certainly I, I think you're right about that Adam I think it's uh, the the thing that I felt the most it was such a drastic shift because uh, and, and as Stu mentioned I work for the Chicago Bulls locally and call their games and last year the season the pandemic shortened NBA season didn't start till right around Christmas time. And we weren't traveling for most of the NBA games and the NFL season had pretty much come and gone without real, much real crossover, so to speak. And now this year, and this is just a personal complaint. It's not a real complaint. It's just something that, that that's part of the job this year with the season for the NBA being on time with traveling to road games this season it's felt more like like the real thing and more like the grind that I was expecting uh, when I first was fortunate enough to get get these opportunities. So now it, feel, it felt like a real season, you know. And I, I look at guys like the Iron Eagles of the world, who are you know mentors of mine, who have done this for a long time, you know, twenty some odd years, maybe twenty five years. And I think, wow, this is that's a long time to be able to navigate 
through uh through the through the football season while navigating through two and a half months of the basketball season. So it's felt real. It's felt like uh, like what I expected, but the energy of the stadiums, the energy of the games, that that's kind of what we live off of as announcers. It really is. That's that's our drug of choice in a lot of ways. And and for us, it's been nice to to have that energy on a week-to-week basis. Yeah. I, I, over the course of the season on this podcast, as you can probably imagine, we've tried to figure out what went wrong or where it went wrong, where it all began, really. And I think in prep for this, I think I may have found a new a thread for people to hunker down and try and like find a route of because when you came on this pod last year the Seahawks were eight and three heading into a Giants game with Colt McCoy at quarterback since that pod and what one of us on this podcast called that game not me called that game a cakewalk by the way um since that pod the Seahawks are 10 and 11 and the Empire we has found cr- it and the Empire we found it. so Adam I mean is it you we found we found uh, patient zero for this, for this uh, <laughs> struggle for this struggling Seahawks uh, run of the last twenty one games of this last season season and a third. It's it's on me, I guess. Yeah. I that what a shocking game too. And the last couple Seahawks games I've had, that was one, and that we had them earlier this year in Week Four. And it's been such an up and it's been so difficult to try to pin down what the issues have been. And a lot of it, listen, has been close games. You look at the Bears game, and it's. It's a loss at the final horn. Uh, then they scored 51 points last week against Detroit. And it's, it's been that type. The last two weeks you could really look at as kind of a microcosm of what's been the last year for Seattle, just trying to pin down what specifically has been an issue and whether it's defensive issues on the back end, whether it's health up front on the defensive side, whether it's shuffling on the right side of the offensive line, whether it's not having a tight end that, that Russell Wilson feels completely comfortable with in a shuffling room. You know, the running game obviously has been up and down. Uh, it, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what's what's gone on over the last 13 months or so, but it's been one of the more fascinating stories. And it's kind of, as you guys alluded to, almost reaching almost, I don't want I'm I'm not gonna over overblow the Wilson situation yet, but it is reaching a peak. It feels like everything that's happened in the last 13 months is kind of reaching a peak now. Well, I was gonna say, um, you know, you will, we, we live in very much of a Seahawk echo chamber, whether it's the Facebook sure. groups or social media or podcast responses. Well, please God, um, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But you, you, you're going to have people tuning in on Sunday and let's assume for the sake of argument, they've just come off a cruise ship and not seen any games all year. And you're going to give a three sentence diagnosis of the Seahawks. Let's say the Seahawks have just, have just had their like yearly health checkup with a doctor. What are, we, what are we saying to the patients here? Because yeah. I think from our perspective, we have a lot that needs to be fixed. But maybe from the outside looking in, it, it's not quite as dramatic as that. So, I mean, the, the way we – this is exactly how we approach games sometimes, Adam, too. Like, this is exactly how we go into a week trying to figure out what is the layman thinking about when it comes to watching a team that maybe they haven't seen or, or in Arizona's case, a team they haven't seen in, you know, six or seven weeks now. Uh, so if an Arizona fan is tuning in and they want to know what's happened over the, over the last, you know, two months with Seattle, since Colt McCoy got a victory over them, you know, uh, in, in, in that game in November, what, what do we look at? It's Russell Wilson, obviously it hasn't been a typical Wilson season. It's the first time in his career he's been hurt. So he he hadn't hadn't missed a start. I mean, this has been the most, arguably the most durable player in the NFL. You know, there, there's a couple of offensive linemen and Andrew Whitworth or, you know, an Alex Mack or, or some guys who've made a lot of consecutive starts, 
But in terms of durability, in terms of how much they get hit, in terms of what they've gone through, Russell Wilson has been as durable of a player as we've seen in the last decade of the National Football League. And now to see him deal with injury is a first. So that already has thrown Seattle off its axis because they have not had to concern themselves at any point with Russell Wilson's durability until he got hurt earlier this year. The running game, which has always been a point of contention in terms of discussing the Seahawks, whether it's Chris Carson trying to stay healthy. When he's been healthy, he's been great. But how much emphasis has been placed on the running game and how much has this offensive line shuffling affected how consistent the running game could be? So those are the two things on offense that stuck out to me. And then the back end for the Seahawks has been a major concern since the Legion of Boom era has kind of dissipated. So those are the three treetop headlines in terms of what's gone on on the field that stick out to me as somebody who's going to parachute in and just look at the Seahawks for the first time in a couple of months. Those are the three things football-wise that, that stick out to me. Then the contract situation is kind of a subtext to, to Wilson. Bobby Wagner on the defensive side is another uh, kind of uh, thread that you can look at. But those are the three, four, five things that, frankly, I think have defined Seattle uh, over the last season plus. And that's kind of how we approach it. Those are the starting points. The, obviously, there's a lot of branches with all of these limbs that we go off of. Uh, and obviously, it depends on how the game goes to discuss these things. But those are the three or four things that I think have kind of defined Seattle for a long period of time and, and especially over the last year. Yeah, we we, uh, we had uh, Gus Johnson and Akeem Tlaib on the call last week when it was just it was it was in, it was refreshing because they actually obviously may have been helped with the blowout nature of the game, but they were like sharing like actual opinions on things. Where it kind of just seems like I think I think you and Mark are really good at that, that that as well. When you call games, you kind of give your own take. Where Gus and Akeem were talking about the Zoom meetings that they had with Pete and Russ and actual interesting things seem to come out of it and we're being shared by the pair is is that something that's difficult to do it, themselves in the zoom interviews where obviously they've talked to the media a few hours before and they've given everything and then also being able to get that over on the broadcast that like, you kind of have got this in your in your back pocket kind of thing yeah well like we'll talk with russell and pete tomorrow and i always kind of think about how do we get something that is unique without feeling like we're trying to break something that's not there. And, that, and, that, and especially with Russell and his contract situation and the no trade clause and could this be the last game? And, and that's, been, that's dominated Seattle's headlines because they haven't performed up to, up to par. So naturally, other conversations are going to pop up. And it's hard sometimes because I don't want to feel like I'm the one who is responsible for putting a cap on Russell Wilson's Seattle career because we don't know. And to assume that, is kind of not not irresponsible. I don't think that's it's it's just a broadcast of a football game. It's not that serious, but I do feel like there's some responsibility that I have to make sure that I'm not overblowing a situation tomorrow. A pointed question without feeling like I'm pressuring him to give me an answer on something that obviously a lot of people care about is is a delicate balance to try and find. But I do think it's incumbent to at least ask and say, Russell, I know there's been a lot of discussion about this, and I know what you have said. You hope that this isn't your last game at Lumen Field. This is obviously what he said last week before the, the home finale. I, you hope that this isn't your, your last game at Lumen Field. You do appreciate the relationship that you have with Pete Carroll and the Seahawks. There is a no trade clause in there, so he can veto any trade that pops up. And that's the, that actually, in a contract sense, makes it more difficult to try to speculate because 
it's going to be up to him. And to say that, oh, well, Russell Wilson will have options, that's not breaking news. There's going to be teams that say, hey, if you're interested, this is the package that we have for him. If that interests you and him, great. But to speculate on that is to assume that we know something that other people don't, and we just don't because we're playing this. Our job on a Sunday is to try to be as much of a liaison to the fan, from the fan to the, to the game as possible. But also, it's not up to me to determine what the state of Russell Wilson's career is going to be going forward. All I can try to give you is the state of what it is now. And for me, it is given the, giving you those facts. Russell Wilson has the no-trade clause. He says he wants to stay. We'll decide you know, to ask him a question tomorrow. And I'm sure myself or Shannon or Mark, somebody is going to ask him that question. And whatever answer he gives, he and he knows this because he's done a million of these pregame, you know, pre-Sunday interviews uh, in, in, in production meetings. He's done, you know, 170 of these now in his career. He understands what, what the, the answer is supposed to be and how it's supposed to be framed. And my job is to try to frame it to the reality of now as much as possible. And it's, it's a balance for sure. And I have my opinions. I don't think Russell Wilson is playing his last game as a Seahawk. I think they're going to figure out a way. I think Russell's connection with Seattle is pretty deep. Uh, I don't know if any team is going to have the exact package that they're willing to give to Seattle that will appease both the front office and Russell Wilson. So for me, in my head, and this is just based on my own gut feeling and based on reading the tea leaves, I don't think this is his last game. So I may say that. But is it really going to hold any weight? Not really. I'm just a play-by-play announcer coming in for week 18. Like, it's not really going to have that same weight. So it's not as important for me personally to give my, my opinion on where he's going to be next year. But I can give you the facts. I can give you what the feeling was when we spoke to him on Friday. Those are the things that I can try to give you. And then I can try to give you as much of a picture as possible. But I don't think it's necessarily incumbent on me to try to shape the narrative going forward. So I have to credit Michael Sean Dugar for putting this idea in my head. Um, Bobby Wagner has to hope he's back in Seattle next year. Mm. Carroll, to an extent, has to hope he's back in Seattle. Russell Wilson is the only person that gets a paycheck from the Seattle Seahawks that doesn't have to hope anything because yeah. he controls his destiny. So I don't know if it was a you know robot malfunction uh, in Wilson, he needs a bit more WD forty <laughs> in those joints or something, or you know, oil, oil something in there. But the the use of the term hope, if if I was going to ask him a question, I'd say, why are you hoping anything? You you control your destiny entirely. So I found that quite an interesting term that he used, and for someone that is so pointed with his language, I wonder if there's something in that that made me think, huh? You you shouldn't have to hope anything. I I think that's. When we talk about the Seattle echo chamber, it is, and I'm again, this is, you are in it every day, especially for the two of you who are constantly up to date on the mannerisms, the tone, the pacing. You've heard it forever for with, with Russell Wilson, and and I'm, I've heard plenty of it as well. And I agree with you, and I, I I I agree that he's probably been one of the more careful players in the NFL. He and Tom Brady, I look at as two people who are very careful with how they frame things. So when he does frame something in a fashion that doesn't maybe sound like his normal self, like you said, maybe he needs a little bit of a little bit of a reset. And, uh, you know, you hit the button in the back of the machine to try to reset him <laughs> and, and get him back to normal. But I understand where the, the reading would be 
uh, we're trying to read between the lines of Russell Wilson. And I agree with you. I, I Again, my my opinion is that he doesn't have to hope because he has his destiny in his hands. And and he if he wants to stay in Seattle, he's going to. And nobody's going to deny him that. Uh, the front office won't. Uh, the fan base will certainly be happy if he comes back. Uh, he, it's, it's up to him. And that's why, for me, in the course of a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour broadcast, it's not the best place to try to parse those things unless – it's a 51 to 20 game and we have the opportunity because at the end of the day too, let's not forget that Arizona has a lot to play for in the sense of trying to win the division and trying to get a home playoff game. Those are very important things for them, especially considering the the potential of going to maybe a cold weather city or having, having to play outdoors or whatever it may be. Like this is a very important game for Arizona. It's a divisional rivalry. We know how good these games, you know, barring the, the earlier meeting this year when, when Colt McCoy was playing, these meetings have been really good. Like the, the Arizona Seattle games have been very exciting. So I, I think there's a lot to play for. So if the game allows for that and, I, and Mark, as, as you pointed out, Stu, he's very opinionated. He talks about these things on podcasts all week long. He, he thinks deeply about how the league is going to go forward, how players approach their weeks. Uh, if, if that situation pops up, I don't doubt that a conversation will be had. Yeah. And certainly for us as a production crew, when it comes to graphics or video, we're going to have some clips of Russell Wilson and some graphical things that show how much he's meant to Seattle. If, if somehow this is his last game and, and I've already thought about how I'm going to frame it when he comes out and we've talked to our graphics department, we have those little side slabs that come up on the side of the screen, but just a little couple of nuggets, uh, mm. statistics, whatever it may be. And I told my graphics person, I would like this this week. So I'll give you, we'll pull back the curtain a little bit on the TV broadcast. I've told Jonathan, my graphics man, I would like three nuggets on Russell Wilson. I would like his win total. I would like the career starts out of how many possible starts. And I would like to mention that he's the Super Bowl 48 champion. Because those are the three things that kind of signify to me how valuable he's been in the regular season and postseason in his careers. 112 career wins, regular season and playoffs. He started, I think it's 173 out of a possible 176. So the durability factor. And then, of course, he brought Seattle a Super Bowl title. So those are the three things that stick out to me. And I'll probably frame it as such when he comes out. A lot of discussion about Russell Wilson, whether or not this could be his last game with the Seahawks. Well, we talked to him on Friday about it. You know, it's, it, the, the decision will be up to him. He has the no trade clause. And this has been his career in Seattle. Regardless, it has been a very lucrative and productive one. And I think that's the best way I can frame it in the sense of, a zero zero game on the first time Seattle comes out to take the ball. Yeah. Adam, uh, yeah. I, had a, I had a question that went completely out of my head while you were giving us the pull behind the curtain. Uh, when I had when I had coronavirus, I did have a few things that I was doing at home and I just completely forgot about them. So I can empathize with that. <laughs> um, you're actually leading me so nicely into what I want to say, Adam. So we've been blessed in the last decade with some of the most braggadocious, emotional, just brilliant characters that Stu and I have been lucky to interview a few of them and it's just been the greatest of thrills if it was to be Wilson's last game and I know this is kind of boring because we don't know but let, let, we just frame it as if it was so Stuart and I tried to talk about it last week and we, we were trying to wonder from a ranking perspective bear in mind that it would have to be Wilson talking himself out of Seattle does it seem insane to you as an outsider that I may not have him in my like top six, top seven Seahawks of the last decade, despite all of what you've just said. Because for me, as a guy, he's, he almost leaves me a bit cold. Like we always say, he has a podcast that no one listens to. 
which is crazy, right? He's, he's uh, like I think we spoke about this with Jackson this summer. Like compare him to Griffey in Seattle, and it's it's a no contest. I mean, Russell Wilson might have it, but like it's a pilgrimage. Like the first thing I did two years ago when I went to Seattle was go to the statue, the Griffey statue. I wasn't watching Mariners baseball in 95, 96. I want, but he is the backwards cap, the logo, everything. He yeah, like like Kobe did in like basketball over here. He transcended everything. Russell Wilson in that city, it, it, like for me, he's not on my Mount Rushmore of Seahawks in this era. Like I, I think I agree. I don't think he's he's not in my top. Yeah, I think it's Sherm, Doug, Bobby, Marshawn, Michael Bennett, Michael Bennett, and Cliff, kind sure. of like a weird like twin situation, and then probably Russell Wilson, which is insane when you talk 112 wins in. A decade. I, I, you know, what? it's a fascinating framework to think about it because the assumption would be, and certainly mine would be, because my, and, and again, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm more than a layman, but, but less than, than the hardcore fan when it comes mm-hmm. to Seattle. So I'm, I'm educated enough, but it's, that's a great framework to kind of discuss him in because is he, despite bringing a Super Bowl title to Seattle, kind of helping put Seattle back on the map, is there a definitive Russell Wilson moment? Because that Super Bowl was a blowout win. Denver played a very poor game right out of the gate. And the defense was phenomenal in that game, in a Super Bowl title. And I, I kind of wonder, is, does he have the same impact? Now, part of that could be, Russell has a personality that is very malleable. It's very adaptable. I think he's always been very easygoing. I think there's something to that. The neutral thinking that he's always talked about, that's not exactly the sexiest thing. Whereas you look at somebody like Marshawn, who is so bombastic and has such a wide swath of moments that you can look at and go man remember the beast mode run obviously man remember uh, him riding around in a golf cart remember him on the sideline mic'd up with Richard Sherman and you have these little moments that you just can just kind of pick out and Griffey obviously has had moment after moment whether it's climbing the wall or the home run or the swing or the or the hat or the, the iconic image of him Russell Wilson I think purposefully almost in a sense has kind of avoided that and maybe that's part of the reason why. And I don't think it's necessarily a, uh, a, a referendum on his career in Seattle. I think maybe it's just more of, a, of, a, of an observation about his personality. You know, I, I know he's married to a celebrity in a sense, but he's, a, he's just kind of a normal family man in a lot of senses. He's downplayed a lot of that stuff. So maybe that has, that's a small reason why maybe for somebody like me, I would see him just as the career that he's had in Seattle. But for those who are more locked into what's happening in that city, sports-wise, Seahawks-wise, I can understand that. I, I honestly can understand why maybe that that could be the case. I, I can see the case made for that. Yeah. Also, I remembered what I forgot earlier. Terrible, terrible things happened to the Seahawks in that building you're walking into on Sunday, by the way, Adam. We're, Super, we're aware. We're aware. Super 49, the 6-6. And then uh, the Buda Baker play and, yeah. and uh, all of that stuff, man. Like, that, Cap- like that's the, the, the last 10 years in that building. <laughs> yeah, we, had, we saw the end of Cam, uh, Cam and Sherm in that building. 
Yeah, and six, Thomas, six. I think. And, oh, yeah, I know Thomas. I was in the building for that one. All uh, three played their last game for Seattle in that stadium. Yeah, yep. and the 6-6, six, six, where we were staying up till half five in the morning over here to watch a 6-6 six, six <laughs> on NBC Sunday Football. So, yeah, it's a wild game. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, it is, it's just it's all part of the, the fun of... It kind of makes what is from a like it's a week eighteen game as you say it's been a long season. It kind of keeps the juices flowing. That there's so much yeah. to talk about for you guys, I guess, doesn't it? Absolutely, and 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 again, the the intrigue for the casual fan, the intrigue for an Arizona fan that's watching Seattle for the first time in ten weeks or eight weeks, whatever it is, that that does stick out to me because that's kind of how we have to approach the games. And I know that doesn't always appeal to the hardcore Se- Seahawks fan. But that's that's our job. It's our job to try to frame it as best as possible. And the first thing that people think of with the Seahawks is Russell Wilson right now in this current iteration. And, I, and you could say that about most teams and their quarterbacks. I understand that. But that's that's the way it is for Seattle as well. And because of that news surrounding him, because of the news surrounding Carroll and Wagner in particular, those three are going to be headline uh, characters in whatever drama plays out on Sunday this week. Yeah. Does it seem hugely ungrateful from the outside in that 10, 11 win seasons aren't being seen as enough? Because <laughs> we get it a lot. Like we get it from a lot of the older fans on like Facebook groups. Like we lived through the 80s. How dare sure. you? Whereas for me, you know, we're slightly younger than that, obviously, but like we're here to win. And yeah. I, I've always said, like, Russell Wilson is going to be a long time in our lives, not the quarterback of the Seattle Seahawks. And I don't apologize for wanting to squeeze every last drop out of that as I can. And sure. for me, making the playoffs now is not enough because otherwise, what are we doing here? Well, and that's that's a luxury, too, in a sense, because you have a city, you have a franchise that holds itself to a championship standard. And I again, I, I live it on a on a on a nightly near nightly basis with the Bulls because the standard was the '90s. The standard was set. You have to live up to every Bulls player, every Bulls team since 1999 has had to try to live up to a standard of what was set in a six title and eight year run. And it's a, it's an impossible standard to try to live up to, but that is the standard that you're going to be judged by because of exactly what you talked about, Adam, that when you build a fan base, you build a fan base of five month old kids who are being indoctrinated into Seahawks lore and given the, you know, the t-shirt where, you know, the onesie when they're, <laughs> when they're old enough to wear it and that, and you have a fan base built of people who were there in the seventies when this, this organization was first starting to make some waves like that matters to people and everybody in between's opinion matters but the bookends do matter. And if you lose that, then there is a, a feeling of shifting in how the team is perceived, how the franchise is, is perceived. Perception is a very important thing when it comes to acquiring players, when it comes to pitching free agents, when it comes to wanting to keep players like a Russell Wilson. He's helped set a championship standard. In Seattle. And that's the standard that they're going to be judged by for at least the next 10 years, because that's it's a recent championship that this team has won. You know, within the last decade, they've won a Super Bowl. So naturally, that's the standard that's going to be set. So in a way, it's a luxury. And you should want that. There's what's the old uh, adage? Anger is a lot better than apathy. 
you'd much rather have a fan base be angry at the organization than not care at all about the organization. Here in Chicago with the Bulls, there was a time where there was a lot of apathy about this organization. And that is far worse than having fans be upset about a free agent signing, about not keeping a player or keeping a player, the coach that's in command. It's the same thing with the Bears. There is a standard set. And at some point, that 85 championship is going to go away. But the standard of at least making the playoffs now on a consistent basis is there. And if you don't make the playoffs, that's what you're going to be judged by. The New York Giants deal with the same thing because they won two Super Bowls under Eli Manning. And their expectation is, we should probably at least be in the playoffs instead of <laughs> you know not having a winning record at any point in the last five years. Yeah. Also, the Silks, when I get the apathy thing, you just have to look across the, the road and uh, T-Mobile Park over the last 20 years. Although it did pick up uh, in 2021. Um, last time you came on the pod, Adam, we talked about um, moving the subject on a bit. The, your, well, still one of my, two of my favourite calls to your Final Four calls a few years ago. Ten, a week ago, you were, uh, I mean, you're all over Instagram a few days ago with, I, I lived in Canada for six months, so the Raptors were the team on TV every night. DeMar DeRozan and Carl Lowry, the, the bromance they had is, it's, it's, it's really cool for people probably over this other part and weren't, weren't aware of it uh, as that team kind of built up towards their title run, obviously without DeMar. But DeMar DeRozan, back-to-back buzzer beaters. I mean, in that building at Christmas, that must have been a pretty, for someone who grew up going to that arena, that must have been a pretty special couple of nights. It was a wild run. Uh, and I unfortunately wasn't there for the second game, second, the second of the back-to-back. I had to be in Baltimore the next night for, uh, for an NFL game last week. So, uh, I wasn't I, I wasn't fortunate enough to be there for the second one, which was almost as incredible as the first one. But uh, I once in a while you get one of those and it jolts you back to reality about, you know, about how this job is supposed to how, how this job at its best is supposed to go. I think we get into the grind. We talked about the length of this season. It's week 18. It's it's been a long year. And now I'm in the midst of the NBA as well. But games like that, moments like that in particular, kind of jar you back to reality. And you, you remember why the job is special, why you enjoy being there for moments like that. I'm, I'm, again, strictly just speaking from my own perspective. I can't imagine what it's like to be a fan and actually live through the emotional roller coaster of that as well. But it's moments like that that really make you thankful for the job itself. I, I was fortunate to do the Rams-Ravens game last week where Odell Beckham catches a touchdown with a minute to go to take the first lead of the day for the Rams. And moments like that, you kind of build. Everything is building up to the hope, the hope that you have. We use that word already. The hope that one of these moments pops up at a time like that when people are watching and people care. And it's, it was a really – I can only imagine if I had been lucky enough to call the, the game on Friday – the Bulls game Saturday, which I did not call, and then do the game on Sunday with Beckham. That would have been a that would have been one heck, heck of a weekend, I think. Yeah, and also also so, so what like we spoke before with guys who covered the Seahawks, like with the Shermans and Doug Baldwin's and Marshawns, who we already mentioned. Someone like DeRozan, DeMar DeRozan, who has is so open about things outside of basketball, obviously yes. like mental health and everything. It kind of makes you root for people a little bit more when moments like that happen to people, like athletes, people like that. That's part of the reason that we try when we can to add some anecdotal material, to add some background info. And people always wonder, like, you know, like, oh, I don't care about this story about this guy's 
you know, family's bakery or whatever. And that's fine. Like some, some of these are just fun things to sprinkle in, but what people forget sometimes is the human element of it. Like you mentioned, Stu, like the, the human element is still important in drawing people into the sport that you're, you're calling and giving them a reason to care beyond just the box score, beyond just the final score, beyond just the parlay that they're trying to put together uh, <laughs> on that particular week. You know, it's nice to be able to have moments like that. And Damar, I've been fortunate to have interactions with him this year. And he's a part of it, too, is we're around the same age. He's one of the older guys on the team. Uh, I'm 35 now at this point, which, you know, it still feels like a baby in this particular job. But around the athletes that I currently cover, I'm around the same age as some of these, some of the veteran guys now. And I feel comfortable talking to them about certain things. I, I remember talking to DeMar in Los Angeles and I had lost my father a few years ago and, and he was a very important figure in my life. And obviously I'll carry that for the rest of my life. And DeMar had lost his father last year and he was playing in Los Angeles where he's from. He's from Compton. He was playing his first game in LA without his dad. His dad, would, his dad Frank would always come to every game that he would play against the Clippers or the Lakers. Every game, never missed one. So the first game that he played without his father, he had a phenomenal game against the Clippers. And then the next night he had a huge game against the Lakers. And I remember talking to him before the Laker game. And I just, all I told him was, Hey man, I appreciate your openness with this stuff. You know, and I told him, you know, I lost my dad a few years ago and it was hard to talk about. And I just, I really appreciate that, that you open things up uh, you know, for people like that. I remember telling Kevin Love the same thing a few years prior because he had been inspired by DeMar DeRozan's openness about mental health and, and kind of navigating this. And he's become a huge advocate for it in the last few years, along with DeMar. And both of them had very similar things to say about the subject. And they make it very easy to root for them. And, and that's the thing, guys. Like it, It's certain people stick out in this business, athletes. I'm, I'm getting older and I'm becoming a little bit more jaded about athletes and coaches where I'm like, listen, a lot of what you guys say is probably bullshit. And that's fine. That is fine. It's part of the gig. It's part of the, the territory that we're in. There's a lot of coverage. I'm sure you don't want to deal with it. See a lie. And that's fine. In some ways, you know, you, you get out of way, you know, you, or you, or you shield the truth. You're not going to throw somebody under the bus. Fine. That's good. I, I respect that. And I, I recognize those moments. So when you see people and hear people, who are in those positions, be as brutally honest as some of these guys have been, it makes it very easy to root for them because they show that level of vulnerability. Yeah. One of my um, favorite little anecdotes that I'm sure never happened, but I like it anyway, is uh, Neil Armstrong's mates say, do you want to go to the cinema tonight? And he goes, nah, I've been to the moon. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, when it comes to commentary, not every game can be the moon. Not every right. last minute winner, you know, Odell Beckham against the Ravens, there must be the temptation to go bananas. But how do you pace things like across, especially yeah. across the season? Because there will be people that kind of track the commentators that do this and do that. And, you know, Joe Buck makes one strange call and it follows him around forever. So is, is there a conscious thing that you have to pace that? Or is it just you just feel the moment and just have to trust your instincts that will take take control? I used to think it was only trusting the moment and trusting your instincts. I, I used to think that. And then I've realized, I've come to realize, especially in this year, this year in particular, 2021 season, that it's better for me to pace. It's better for me to try to be conscientious of the pacing of it because you don't want to go overboard on every call. Now, when, when DeMar DeRozan hits a buzzer beater to win the game, 
that the, the, everything that's kind of built up to that moment and what was a very intense game, it was tight all the way down to the wire. The Bulls were down five with about a minute to go. So that's there's build up, natural build up to that. That's trusting your instincts that if you go big on a call that you're doing the right thing because I've done it before and I know how to do it. You still have to execute it. But at the very least, I have a blueprint for how I can go about it or how I can approach it. And then those reps, the opportunities to do it a lot, combined with conscientiously saying, take a breath here, big moment coming. I remember in the booth, uh, I was with Greg Olson. I was filling in on, on Kevin Burkhart's crew last week. And I, I think there was a minute to go or a minute 40 to go, whatever it may have been. And the Rams were getting the ball back and Stafford was starting this drive. And, and I remember literally putting my hands like this in the booth while the crowd was going nuts taking a big, deep breath and just doing that in the booth with a couple minutes to go. And it's a conscientious thing I had to teach myself to be able to, to handle some of the big moments. Al Michaels doesn't, doesn't go overboard on anything mm-hmm. because he has seen everything. He is called <laughs> arguably the greatest moment in American sports television history. You could argue that 1980 is the greatest thing that's ever happened in American sports. And, that, and that's an easy case to make for that. He's seen everything in his career. So on a game-winning touchdown, it still doesn't sound, Al doesn't go way high on anything. You can tell he's excited. He's shocked by it. Oh, man, have, did you see that? It's his words, his reactions. Vern Lundquist, very much the same mold when he was finishing his college football career at CBS. He was very similar in that regard. And, and it's not a coincidence that those guys have been around for a long time. For those of us who still seek that excitement level, it's a hard balance to try to teach ourselves. Let's not go overboard on everything. Not everything is the biggest call ever, but let the moment that the moments that lead up to that final peak, let those dictate what the call and what the energy is like. The crowd is going to play a role in that as well. The crowd is going nuts. You might have to elevate. My Beckham call wasn't a screaming, yelling call. It was, it was an excitable but measured call because it gave them the lead, but there was still a minute to go. So it may not be the biggest play of the game. Uh, it's a road team doing it. So the crowd is going to go more silent in Baltimore when the road team does that. And you have to play for that as well. And experience gives you the sense for that. The reps give you the sense for that, but also being conscientious of that. I, I appreciate the question, Adam cause, and Stu, because it's, it's, it is something we do conscientiously try to think about. I think having listened back or I was watching that game, if I'm right in saying the fourth and five catch that Beckham made was yes. almost the one that sucked the energy out of the stadium more yes. than the touchdown. I agree with that. And, and I was almost more excited for that or about as even on that call as I was for the touchdown call because that that's the game. If mm. they don't make – if he doesn't make that catch – and by the way, his catch was much harder on the fourth and five than it was on – as difficult as the touchdown was too – the, the catch on the fourth and five was harder because he had a defender draped over him. I think it was Geno Stone. He had to make a pure hands catch. No body. It's pure hands. And obviously, we know that he's got some of the best hands maybe in NFL history amongst receivers. But that was a pure hand catch. And again, am I thinking about that in the split second that he makes the grab? No. But I understand the context of the, of the moment. And I see the difficulty of the play. And I hope that my tone is enough to kind of you know, exemplify what that play means at that particular moment. Yeah. And in a, in a universe that myself and Adam control, you would be calling Odell Beckham's name this Sunday 
not last Sunday <laughs> as well. Um, a, a, a few, a few more things. Obviously, we spoke last week. We kind of tried to pay our tribute to him, but John Madden died uh, ten days or so ago. It kind of feels like one thing I said that everyone we hear on Sundays, Saturdays, Mondays wouldn't be doing that if it wasn't for how fun John Madden made it sound and seem. Is that accurate for your experience and your path to where you are now? Uh, you often get asked the question, what analyst would you want to work with that uh, that you never had a chance to? My, my answer is always, 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 always been John Madden. Always. I thought the originality of what he did is the pure blueprint, pure blueprint of what every football analyst and a lot of basketball and other analysts too, but in particular football, every football analyst is doing something that John Madden did at some point. And it can be as simple as the telestrator because he kind of made that real him. And I would say Mike Fratello uh, on the NBA. Those are the two people that made the telestrator sing, truly sing like, (laughs) He was the first one to do it, but he applied it in a way that made it fun. He was the college professor that every student wanted. He was the guy that you, I want to take his class because he teaches you a lot of complex concepts, but it comes in a way that is digestible, processable, absorbable, and you can, you can keep it. You can keep that information in your head. So from a television standpoint, he is the blueprint for how this job is done. It's supposed to be done. It's supposed to be fun, but he's also giving you things that nobody else sees and to take, truly take you inside the game. And he picks his spot. He always picked his spots really well. Cause we, I think as, as football commentators have a tendency sometimes to get too deep into the weeds and we're not able to fish the fan out of, of that depth. We, we want to take you inside and then be able to pull you back out. And then you see the whole forest. And Madden was the best at, at doing that. So as a, as a coach, obviously, he was phenomenal. He had an, an incredible record with the Raiders. As a broadcaster, he brought it to life for us. And then for somebody like me, and I imagine for guys like you, the video game is a big reason why I love football the way I do. And it's a, it's a major reason why I even have as much of a knowledge base as I did before calling NFL games. Because Kyler Murray, who, whom we talked to before the Bears game, so this must've been like week 13 or something like that. We did, we did the bears Cardinals game. And I remember asking Kyler about it. And he said something along the lines of playing Madden and learning seven on seven drills and learning routes and learning route combinations. Justin Fields, who, you know, I do the bears preseason games here in Chicago said the same thing. You're kind of learning how to read the field based on Madden. And that should not be understated the impact that somebody like John Madden and the concepts in a video game, what kind of role that's played in a lot of players ages right now, eight to 35, like you can't understate the impact uh, that somebody like John Madden has had in so many aspects of not only football, but broadcasting multiple sports. Yeah. I mean, it's, tra- it's as you say, it's transatlantic as well with this guy. Yep. It's it's yeah. Everyone talks about fancy game of Madden. Um, about a year ago, I, 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 uh, direct message to Adam about uh, one thing next on your arm we should talk about may lose Adam for a few minutes here uh, Bo Burnham's inside last year yes still <laughs> it's probably the best thing I watched last year yeah it's it's one of the funniest things I watched it's one of the best music soundtracks ever to a thing as yep. well I mean that was perfectly timed put together he's just, he's a genius isn't he 
I, I felt the same way you did. I remember you, uh, you messaging me immediately after I had said something. <laughs> I, tweet, I think I tweeted something about it. And I, I've, I've given up on Twitter, by the way. Like I still, yeah. I'm still on Twitter. I haven't tweeted in months, yeah. probably since July. Like it's just, I think it's, it's starting to slip through my fingertips, which is fine. But one of the last things I tweeted was Bo, uh, a, a quote from Bo Burnham. And I've always thought of, and it was from a previous special, and I've always thought of him as one of the smartest people, the smartest artists I've ever been exposed to. I, I thought the way he took a medium like YouTube in its infancy and turned it into, I mean, we were just talking about John Madden. Bo Burnham is very much a blueprint for how people today express themselves in the mediums that they're given in a digital world. He is as unique and as original of an artist as I think I've ever come upon, uh, come upon. And that special encapsulated, and I know I'm not the only one to, to say this, and I'm, no, I'm certainly not the only one to feel this not in this conversation alone, but worldwide, I, that encapsulated the pandemic to me as well as anything ever. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't straight up say that I'm here because it's a pandemic. I'm in a room because of this. So that kind of makes it timeless in a sense. But for all of us at that moment, that is exactly what it encapsulated perfectly. What our feelings were like, what our brains were doing on a day-to-day, -day, sometimes hour-to-hour -hour basis, it, jumping from one thought to another, one good thought to a bad thought, to a scary thought, to an exhilarating thought, to a depressing thought, to a, to a happy thought, where our brains went from moment to moment to moment, how we uh, consume content at the rate at which we consume it and how it affects us. And, and a lot of the things he talks about are, are important and probably things we should think more about in terms of how we go about our lives going forward, especially in a digital world. But I, I just thought he encapsulated the feelings of more people at a particular moment in this, um, in this planet's history than anybody, you know, better than anybody, just about anybody has done. And it just made me feel like I wasn't the only person who felt that way. And I know that I wasn't, but it, it, it reinforced that feeling. And to me, that that's one of the best pieces of art inside is one of the greatest pieces of art I've ever been exposed to. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And that funny feeling is legitimately one of my yeah. favorite all-time songs. It's, just, it's, about the it's about the apocalypse. Uh, sorry, I don't can yep. do it back in the podcast. It's on the list. It's on the list for, <laughs> for watching. Don't worry about that. Uh, one, one, uh, yeah, obviously, uh, anything else, Adam? Well, I know we, we did ask a food question last yeah. year, and I think you came up with some crazy likes and dislikes of some Chicago fare. But to, to park that from one side, you know, what you're, you're on the road a bit more now. Where's the where's that little restaurant or meal or dish that you most look forward to on the schedule? Saying yes, I get to go there this year. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and obviously there's a slew of them because we're, we're again fortunate enough to go to a lot of different places. Um, we were just in. Uh, or, well, we're heading to Glendale this week. Uh, Tommaso's is one of my favorite places out West. There's one in San Francisco as well. It's one of my favorite Italian places. Uh, Wild Ginger, I think I've talked about in Seattle, has always been one of my favorite go-to places. And it's been a while since I've been back to Seattle, obviously. So, you know, hopefully uh, a trip is, uh, is in line sooner rather than later. But, you know, the Garden Grace in Denver is a wonderful place to go to. Uh, gosh, there, there's three or four Italian places in New York and New Jersey that, that I'm always willing to go to. There's a wings place in Jersey. Anytime I've done a giants game uh, and I've had the opportunity to go back to New Jersey, I used to live and work there. So 
they're, you know, the, the people that hired me for a minor league baseball job in central New Jersey are still some of my closest friends to this day. And anytime I go back, there's a wings place called uh, Zupko's in Dinellan, New Jersey. That is my, arguably my favorite, you know, it's one of my 10 favorite places on, in the country uh, to go eat a meal at. And it's a beer and wings and pizza place. And it's nothing special. It's just perfect for us. So, um, man, it, it's, that's one thing I I'm thankful for, uh, on the road is just to be able to enjoy that. The food, uh, food to me, isn't just the sustenance part of it. And I think, you know, the way we talk about it, I think it's pretty obvious now and there's so much content about food and, and I think it's pretty universally understood. It's not just about sustenance anymore. It's about the social ability of it. And I think, especially in a pandemic when you are, you know, locked away, you know, at times or, you know, like Stu's quarantining right now, like it's, it can be tough to lose that social aspect of one of the fun things that we get to do, which is consume delicious food. And that's why it's always been important to me. And that's why it's, uh, it's always a pleasure and a, and a very fortunate thing to be able to go out with our small group, with our small little crew on a Friday night after we've done meetings. And, you know, we have a long day of work on Saturday, Friday night for us, you know, yeah, as self-contained as, as it is, it's only the six or seven of us, but it, that's a special time for all of us on, on these crews. So uh, I appreciate you saying that. If, I mean, if, if are you a fan of Mexican food? Yeah, well, I mean, come on, I'm, yeah. I'm right here in Chicago. Oh, okay. I, I last, uh, last night, last, last night I ordered from Flacco's Flacco's is one of my favorite places in Chicago. And I had a, I had a good tamale last night. So I, I went to uh, Arizona, see Seattle three and a half years ago in 2018 there's a Mexican place in Old Town Scottsdale called Barrio Queen, which is absolutely incredible. I think I had a conchata pibil, I think it's called. And it's the, one of the best sandwiches I've ever eaten in my life. I'm telling. I'm actually typing it in right now <laughs> just to have it. I'm dead serious. I'm, I'm dead serious yeah, right now. Uh, put in, a picture. Put it right as it's in Old Town Scottsdale. Uh, I found it. I, I found it. And I've got it. Yeah, and they deliver, and they deliver. So that's good to know yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. If we get it, if we're we're sitting around on a Saturday, you know, for lunch or something like that, that might be a great option. So I appreciate the recommendation, my friend. Uh, no. yeah, well, Stuart and I were in Seattle three weeks ago for the 49ers game, and we went to the old barbecue shack that we first met at seven eight years ago, and it brings back all the memories. And of course, the food's great, but it becomes secondary to the to the experiences and being with people that you want to be the, with, and that, that's that, the best that's, part of it. I remember Chris Rock had a quote that said, like, uh, a, a great meal with bad people is a bad meal, but, <laughs> uh, uh, but a hot dog with great company is a great meal. Like, it's, mm. it's very much encapsulating of, of how we approach it, the social aspect of it. Yeah, and I also witnessed Adam be a middle, which is a Kirby enthusiasm thing from this week. This, this, this <laughs> I'm not a middle uh, at all. Uh, a couple more things. Uh, you, you mentioned your dad, your Pakistani roots as well. Obviously, we're enduring the ashes England cricket are in a bit is, is that a sport which you at all grew up on with your dad's familial roots absolutely my dad was a semi-pro cricket player so mm. not a professional at all but you know whatever the equivalent of semi-pro cricket in Pakistan is that was uh, that was his jam so when he came to the United States in the late 70s he naturally gravitated towards baseball and that's why I'm I'm a Chicago Cubs fan this actually right here this is uh the roster of the 1979 Chicago Cubs. <laughs> and it's uh, all the little headshots are, have the autograph of all the players on it. Oh, that's cool. And uh, my boss actually at Fox sports gave that to me as a gift, uh, I, which I thought was incredibly thoughtful. Uh, that was the first team that my father began to root for in America when he came oh, to the United amazing. States. So that was a, cool. that was a re- it was a really cool piece of connectivity, but 
uh, especially earlier this year, I think Pakistan beat India in a test match and that was a big deal. And I think my father would appreciate that. He, uh, when I started working at ESPN in 2011, you naturally get access to, uh, you know, like the, like, like the, the, whatever the, the streaming platform was at the time. And as it started to develop ESPN three, whatever the original inclinations of it were. And the biggest uh, joy of that was to be able to log my father in so he could watch <laughs> all the streaming matches from New Zealand and from Australia and from uh, England and from uh, South Asia of all the test matches that he'd want to watch. So I, I would certainly take some time to watch with him. I didn't understand exactly what was happening at the time, but uh, I certainly had an appreciation for it because of his appreciation for it. Yeah. Uh, we, knew we knew how to watch Pakistan in the summer with uh, Barbara Zam smashing it all around Birmingham. We did. We saw Pac- <laughs> England play Pakistan this summer. It was a great day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one more thing. Obviously, you also, with Fox, you cover baseball. Uh, are the Mariners, like, actually going to make the playoffs in 2022? There's a high hope, right, because of some of the additions they made. I know, I know Seager's retirement, you know, comes, uh, comes at a time where you feel like, oh, man, we really could, you know, we really could use them at this moment. But uh, between what Hanniger did in the late part of the season, what the pitching staff did, kind of, kind of patchwork at times mm. and still was competitive for the division. We, and again, had they made the playoffs, we would have been there. I, our crew would have been on that series. So I, I was – there was a big part of me. I naturally <laughs> wanted – I wanted the White Sox to be a part of it, of, of the series that we did, just because for the convenience factor and because, you know, from here and all that. But if, I would have loved to have a Chicago-Seattle playoff series. That would have been a great joy for me. And obviously next year we'll be on the National League, but hopefully in a couple of years uh, we get a chance to see a Seattle playoff run because I would love to see the atmosphere for, for, for October baseball in Seattle. It's something they've been starving for, obviously, for a long time. I, I think they've got a legitimate shot in a division that always comes in as a very wide open division. The AL West is always wide open. Texas is putting a lot of money into their roster. Now we know who the angels have, you know, I'm assuming they'll be healthy next year with Otani and trout. That's going to be a very interesting division to keep an eye on. Yeah. Uh, So where can people catch your social? You said you're not on Twitter anymore, just Instagram and, just on Instagram. Yeah. So just, at, 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 I mean, it's still, I, I don't get, I'm not going to give up the name on Twitter. That's the, I'm, <laughs> I'm happy to have the, the, the blue check mark and to have the, the domain for it for the time being. But uh, no, I, I, the Twitter thing is uh, as much as I like to get these jokes off once in a while, I think it's better for my own mental health to just not engage. It's, it's easier for me. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Enjoy your trip to enjoy watching the, what we think is the final remnants <laughs> of, this uh, uh, this this, uh, this uh, incarnation of the Seattle Seahawks, and uh, as always, we massively appreciate your time because, as everyone listening, it's probably understand by now, you are very very busy, particularly in this like NBA NFL crossover. But yeah, we appreciate you taking the time to chat to us too. Oh, no worries, gentlemen. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah Adam, I'm a real sports radio junkie, and my dream was always for someone to say, "Here's friend of the show, Adam Nathan." No one cares. <laughs> no one cares what I have to say. But the, the, the next best thing is I get to call people of the show, and so it's an honor to have you as a friend of our show. And uh, we hope that continues long term. Absolutely, gentlemen. Thank you yeah. very much. Uh, everyone, listen. Patreon.com forward slash the Pedestrian Podcast. We've moved a few things around. People who are signed up already. You may want to move over to the new things because I think I made a bit of a boo-boo. Uh, uh, all usual means and methods, Spotify, Podbean, iTunes. Enjoy the game. Enjoy whatever is going to come in the next few weeks for this Seattle Seahawks because those exit interviews are going to be interesting to say the least. Uh, yeah, this has been the Pedestrian Podcast. Go Hawks.